Before we start this podcast, we would like to acknowledge the true locals, the First Nations people who have been custodians of the lands, waters and cultures for tens of thousands of years. We pay respect to First Nations elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this podcast is taking place on Gadigal land in Australia where sovereignty was never ceded. Dino Gladstone is a Bondi lifeguard who was front and centre as one of the head lifeguards during the rise of the TV series Bondi Rescue. He has transitioned into a multifaceted health coach, teaching yoga, PT, and perhaps most notably, become a master breathwork coach. Above all else, he's a passionate waterman and helper to those that need it the most. Welcome to the Ocean Matters Podcast, powered by Board Socks, with your host, Dan O'Connell. And we got Dan O'Gladson on the podcast today. How you going, mate? Good, Dan. I'm frothing. Beauty. Um, so, yeah, like um, all Oceans Matters episodes, we always start off with where did you grow up and what was life like growing up? Yeah, straight into it, hey. I, was, uh, I grew up in Maroubra. Um, on Matraville, actually, just a little bit out of Maribor, and uh, we spent a lot of time at, at kids um, down the north end of Maribor Beach uh, every weekend, really. Yeah, nice. So you're a bra boy. Yeah, with, with the bra boys. Yeah. Um, yeah, Maribor Surf Club, but yeah, grew up sort of in, but all the eastern beaches, you know, we, we spent a lot of time at Tamarama as kids, down at Bondi, in the north corner, but yeah, Maribor, and a fair bit of time at Coogee too. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Um, so what, what age did you first start surfing and or what age did you get into um, kind of playing in the ocean and did you start bodyboarding or surfing? or? Yeah, we were down the beach from day dot. Like my dad, parents like loved the, loved the beach, the ocean. Like we never went to the mountains or anything. I'd, I'd never been to the Blue Mountains before. Um, yeah, so that was, we were beach. When we went on holidays, we went to the beach. Um, yeah, so it was always beach. Um, I did ride a bodyboard till I was sort of 12 or 13, maybe probably 12 years, sort of got a fair bit of pressure in Maribra to, to stand up That's and, uh, and start surfing. Kobe Abaddon's my age. So I, I grew up with Kobe. Um, we weren't super tight. Um, we're friends. But yeah. <laughs> I was terrified of him as a kid. Yeah, he would have been a scary figure. Um, but yeah, we, we had a couple of a couple of my friends were, were good friends with him, so when you were with them, you felt a bit safer. But yeah, Coke was a legend. Like he was so dedicated to his sport at, at that age. Like it was really impressive. Yeah, um, I saw he he beat Kelly Slater in like a kind of a heat back in Maruba back in the day. I remember on that that yeah. documentary, and it wasn't like pumping; it was kind of like grovelly waves. And he still he did him, so he must have had a good small wave game. Yeah, the beach was, um, the whole beach was roaring there. I remember that Kerbox was the event manager for, for that um, for that event. At yeah. Maribra. What, what, what was that? Do you remember? Oh, I can't remember. It was um, like the Coke Classic or something, yeah. like one of those kind of old QS events. Um, Back in the day. And, um, you know, he, he won at Tahiti before it was on the CT. So that was that was huge for Kerb. Um, so it was he on the tour or did he used to do kind of a no, few events that, that, this was before it was a tour event yeah and yeah things were going really well and his brother um, I didn't know we'd be talking about Kobe his brother sort of got charged for, for murder and eventually got off sort of long story yeah. but Kobe lost some sponsors yeah it's all on the on the Broadway yeah. doco it's a really interesting story um, you kind of grew up down there and exploring all the beaches do you think it's changed much from today the crowds and stuff or is it all 
um, relatively similar. Yeah, like all the beaches have changed. They're so much busier. Uh, what a, you know, I, I spent sort of, I was in a surf club, I was a clubby, I guess, so to speak. Um, you know, a swimmer as a kid, spent a lot of time competing and, and racing in the surf club. So, yeah, sort of down there with the surfers. But, you know, there was a little bit of clubby surfer rivalry back in the day. Yeah, still um, probably is a little bit. Well, yeah, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, guys like Jamie Mitchell, who, who's one of my mates who was a clubby, you know, he's... He's, he's a big wave surfer. Big yeah. wave yeah. surfer. Charger. You know, so yeah, charger. So you started in clubbies as well yeah, and then progressed on. Yeah, Molokai 10 times. That yeah. was sort of the board paddling stuff and then sort of progressed to big wave surfing. I think, you know, Kai Lenny's got a background sort of paddling SUPs. And, yeah, so there's definitely a bit of chopping and changing between the two. But, you know, clubby surfers, you know, we just love being in the ocean generally. In all forms, absolutely. And so, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So you went nippers to kind of being a volunteer life Saber, and then yep. onto lifeguarding straight away, or was there? No, I did uh, an apprenticeship. Um, I was sort of struggling. I was I struggled at school. I was like dyslexic, didn't know the alphabet. Hopeless, horrible. Um, but yeah, you know, I can talk about my learning difficulties and and the breathwork, which now I now do, which is really interesting to tie some of it together. But yeah, there was never never university for me. So I did a plumbing apprenticeship and then um, it didn't, you know, enjoyed it. Um, I still use some of what I've learned today, but then you yeah, wanted to work on the beach. It was sort of one of the only things that I was good at that I thought that I could, I could help with and help people with. Yeah. And so was that kind of like a traditional career path then? Were like a lot of people you knew lifeguards or when you're like, I want to be a lifeguard, was everyone a bit like, you know, that's not a, that's not a job or... Was it? Yeah, you know, my dad was sort of like, you know, you've got to get a real job. But, yeah, you know, for me, it was, yeah, it was a, a long time ago. You know, things had changed a lot in the lifeguarding world. You know, it was way before sort of Bondo Rescue. And, yeah, you know, mum was a nurse. So there was a little bit of an element of sort of that medical knowledge. Um, I remember being witnessing a CPR or a resuscitation down at, Marupa one day where the lifeguards brought someone back to life and mum was telling me about it and I was just blown away. You know, I was really impressed with what she did as a nurse and, um, yeah, it just felt like a really nice thing for me to do, a nice union, something I was good at, something I could help people with. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And was it, was it hard to get the qualifications back then to become a lifeguard? Or was no, it not pretty, really. It's, it's sort um, of seamless from the clubby, from the... Your no, it's, it's not the clubby qualifications. The, the hard bit about being a lifeguard is, you know, it, it's hard to quantify for people. I say, how long is a piece of string? Like, you've grown up surfing your whole life, right? You would make the transition fairly easy to being a lifeguard. Someone who hasn't done that, you just, you just don't know. Like, if they haven't grown up at the beach, they might never be able to be a lifeguard. They could train for 10 years, best trainers in the world, and still not be able to do it. So it's sort of something you grow up with for most people. Yeah, yeah you kind of accumulate yeah, the skills. You can't, you can't and just do certificates and be capable in the ocean. You've 100%. got to do the time. You've got to be a grommet. You've got to get your hold downs. You've got to, yeah, you've got to, like the good surfers just know the waves. For sure. Yeah, um, there's such a correlation, isn't there, between yeah. a lot of lifeguards and surfing. Like, mm. look at a lot of the lifeguards out at Bondi and so many of them might have been professional surfers or you see them out there and there. Absolutely yeah, ripping. where originally sort of, I guess, lifeguards were potentially leaning to surf life saving for a background for background because they're sort of doing patrols and you you sort of have some experience rescue people but and helping people. But yeah, the surfers are just naturals. 
Yeah, and so when you started lifeguarding, was it straight to Bondi or did you start off at Maroubra? Yeah, I started at Bondi in, I just finished my apprenticeship, I was like 21, and I started on Christmas Day in the year 2000, and it was like 20 rescues within like 20, the first two hours of work, it was insane, straight in, straight in. Straight into like the busiest beach in the world. Straight (laughs) in the busiest beach, one of the, you know, three busiest days, viewing people, it was insane. Hectic. And um, yeah, what was it like when you first started back then? They hadn't they hadn't started Bondi Rescue yet, so it was just no, still kind of like before Bondi Rescue. It was wild. Christmas Day was insane. Like all the tourists and backpackers used to take couches to the beach and eskies and just get off their face. <laughs> um, you know, I remember a girl trying to grab my face and tonguey me. It was like like it was wild. Wow. Um, it was a year or two after they started to introduce some alcohol laws. Like it was. Every day we got through, like, I was surprised no one died. Wow. Like those intense days, New Year's Day, Australia Day, um, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, they were all huge, boozy days. Yeah, like and what it, kind of staff, amount of staff did you have on for these days? As many as you could back yeah. then. Yeah, the boss would just go, just come to work. That's <laughs> so, so crazy. Um, and then, so how many years in between that and Bondi Rescue starting were there? So that was two, that was 2000 when I started. I think Bondi Rescue started 2005, 2006. So by this stage, I was the team leader at Bondi. Um, myself and Kerbox were, were two team leaders. So we would sort of run the beach and we had Hopper overseeing the, the whole lifeguard service. And um, yeah, it was fascinating. You know, it, it was potentially just going to be like a 60 minute, 90 minute special on TV. And then it's like, oh, we've got a bit of footage here. We might make eight, 30, six or eight 30 minute episodes. And then after I made 30 minute episodes, it's like, oh, we'd love to do it again next year. And the next year they made 10 and, and the next year maybe 12. And then, yeah, it started to get huge. Yeah, completely. I was going to say, when it, when it first got pitched to you guys, did you think this is a good idea or a few people were like, I don't really want to be on TV. I'm just doing my job type thing. Or was it, just, I don't know, did it just flow kind of like, yeah, whatever. We're just um, gonna... Bondi's always been uh, like sort of in the global spotlight, you know. Um, you know, so many famous people down at Bondi. I can't even remember all the Pamela Anderson, you, you know, Borat running around in a bikini. Like um, everyone comes to Snoop Dogg playing there on the New Year's Eve. Like it was so, so much. So, you know, we were, stuff would be on the news or the media anyway because just because it was at Bondi this is before you know this is 20 years ago and it's become even more popular since then uh heaps of photos heaps of media you know it was already happening we were we were doing like one year we did 10 to 12 resuscitations wow. and it was always talked about there was stuff for a tv show like at, back in the like, early 2000 like those stories with the alcohol like that was insane and um you know thought, fortunately common sense changed and but yeah, you guys must have been lobbying pretty hard for the alcohol stuff to get well, changed because you're just like that just affects your job so much. Oh, okay. Like, like yeah. Was, like, thank goodness. And then, you know, it got to a stage where they had security guards on ramps. Well, mm. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, you know, kind so, of calmed down a bit. Since yeah. Then. Society's calmed down a little bit. Yeah. Like Australia Day used to be a lot horrible. Like yeah. People would just... Yeah, it's just an excuse to do whatever you want, really, wasn't it? Yeah. It's kind of disgusting. When when I look back on it, it was ugly. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Bad tattoos and, yeah, like, oi, 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 yeah. Mm. It was horrible. Yeah, completely. And, um, yeah, so did your life change much after that? The Bondi Rescue came to to fruition and you're on TV and, like, 
he kind of became, I guess, a bit of a household name in the space of a couple of years. We probably didn't see that coming yeah, initially. Yeah, it was something that I said, Bondi Rescue is an observational documentary. And a lot of people go, oh, it's reality TV. And it's like, well, no, it's not reality TV. It's not Big Brother. We didn't apply to be here. We don't work for the cameras. They're just filming us doing our job. So it's a documentary um, in the wild almost. Like, it could have David Attenborough creating yeah. <laughs> it. So, um, yeah, we don't do stuff for the cameras, although they pay us, pay us a little bit extra to, for interviews and stuff after work. Extra work's required. So, yeah, very different to other forms of... Uh, reality TV, where you know, I never thought I'd be on TV. I was, you know, as I said, I could barely, barely spell. Didn't know the alphabet when I left school. Um, wasn't going to university. I was, I was a lifeguard to, to help people and rescue people because I was good at good in the ocean. Um, and and that sort of started. And it was, I guess, people just seemed to really connect with with us guys, the, the different types, and and the way they, the way they shot the show. It, it sort of had us, had us been real. Had us making mistakes, had us doing our best, showed people dying. Um, yeah, it, it showed what we do. And yeah, it was like, super authentic. You super can tell authentic. everyone's personality kind of comes out mm-hmm. in it. And yeah, it's no it's no BS. Like it's no reality TV show where people are just, I don't know, yeah, saying what the cameras want to hear yeah. or, you know, not playing themselves. Like everyone's just being yeah, you know, so, you Australian know, waterman. And, who, who is yeah. like extroverted and wild and loud, he's always been like that. Um, yeah, so like my, my mum, you know, one of my mates who's a cop, they're going, I can't believe this is what you do at work. And I'm like, I already told you what I do at work. <laughs> it's just now you're seeing it firsthand. Yeah. I guess they understand. So yeah, that was super cool. And um, yeah, the, the 15 seconds of fame in the first year was was like wild. Like we ended up at the Logies and winning Logies. And I remember there, like, like Glenn McGrath and Wendell Saylor were there and like they'd say, hi, Dean. And I was like, whoa, like, this is insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, this is before YouTube, before. Yeah, that was all before, that was there. Yeah. Like, that's so, just you know, straight TV into the main back platform. Then, when I was a kid, was watching American sitcoms. So, yeah, TV's changed. Yeah, the world's changed a lot since, yeah. since those days. That's, yeah, it's, so, it's such a crazy story and I've never really, like, given it that much thought that... Mm how back then it's it's different than now because people are so distracted by all these yeah. different platforms and things but back then that was just it like you yeah. were just main household entertainment for the kids what you know listening to this podcast you know when i was a kid watching tv in the ad break you had to run to the fridge to get something and then run yeah. back or if you need to go to the toilet you used to have to hold it <laughs> yeah <laughs> completely remember that as well <laughs> I'm, I'm getting old yeah yeah we all are and um, that's funny and so throughout your time there on, on the TV and even in the in just working as a lifeguard, you must have seen some pretty crazy and unusual things down at Bondi, probably more than you can really point a stink. Off your top of your head, is there anything that stands out where you're like, well, that was just an unusual day at work? Yeah, a guy got struck by lightning and we brought him back to life. Um, Colin O'Brien, insane. Wow. Um, yeah, crazy day. 25,000 on the beach, beach is packed, super sunny. And super sunny. Super sunny. It was yeah. beautiful. And then we could see this big storm just rolling up along the horizon. And when you're a lifeguard, you, you're fairly aware of the weather and the wind and the surf. And you're sort of looking all around you. And it's like the rest of the beach is oblivious. This is before mobile phones and web apps and rain, rain radar. And it's like it's literally just <laughs> coming. And people just aren't moving. And then it hits, right? And umbrellas stuck on the beach and stuff going everywhere. 
and we were, we could see it coming. We'd had a busy morning, a couple of rescues out in the sun, maybe trained, and then and then if it rains all afternoon, this is like a perfect day for a lifeguard because you had a little bit of little bit of action, but not too much sun. You, you know, your neck's not sunburned, you're not dehydrated, you're not yelling at people all day. Um, yeah, so we were cheering. The storm comes through. The beach is like white. It's the beach is empty. There's still public surfers, and so the thunderstorm starts. And just bang, we were, the signs were getting blown over, the wind was that intense, you know, it hits really hard. Big lovely. Yeah, mm. going downstairs to sort of pick up some signs so they didn't get blown away or washed into the ocean. And I was on the bike and I was just about to get on the bike and I looked out and just boom. And then next minute there's just this guy, this guy on the ground and we zoomed down and um, he'd been struck by lightning. He was, there was a doornail, we chucked wow. him on the back of the buggy and we pulled him underneath the tower and we had an old sit-up mat there, an old blue sit-up mat that used to be in the gyms and we we chucked him on the mat and started to, you know, try and attempt to bring him back to life. And now he was a doctor and both of his mates were doctors and it was, as a lifeguard, you, you, you know, when we, when we work together to, you know, as a young lifeguard, it's really nice when we work together, you know, to... to to do that thing, but when there's doctors or nurses or someone there, it sort of throws you off your game a little bit. You think, oh, this person knows better than me. You know, now I wouldn't be fussed by that sort of thing. And they're going, oh, they're, you know, there was like this. They're trying to sort of work out that we knew what we were doing and eventually so a little bit of a, you know, you know move out of the way, let us do our thing. And then they sort of realised we knew what we were doing. They just sort of stood back and, and let us use use our equipment because they're not trained in our equipment they don't haven't used our oxygen they haven't used our automatic defibrillator like there's no point in stepping out of the way for a doctor sometimes we've had psychologists say i'm a doctor you know like these guys aren't mds like yeah just move out of the way let us do our thing so eventually they moved out of the way and started resuscitating him and got him back to life and it was it was insane ambulance must have taken 20 minutes and we're just there just well, wow. jumping up and down. When you get struck by lightning, it would just be like a heart attack type thing. It could be anything, just, really. Yeah, yeah. shut his whole body down. Wow. And it, did he look just white, or was he... Yeah, yeah, did yeah. Did he get physically kind of burnt? No, no. I couldn't see anything no. on him. He uh, he back about six months after, and he was still in a wheelchair. Basically, his system sort of got fried by it, but he was making progress. Um, he was up and doing a little bit of walking, but to get around, he's in a wheelchair. So unlucky. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. I'm sure so many of those stories um, like that. Also, what your most intense rescue, like in the water? Do you remember? Most intense? You know, I remember when you're in the tower, I remember being in the tower and seeing a girl in backpackers rip. And the people had just come up from backpackers, so we're sort of changing over. And I remember sort of watching her, like, drown and go under. And then, so I had to go from the tower, drive down, and I think someone else was running. And, you know, you literally sort of, it feels like you're in slow motion. You can see it, but you can't get out to help them. And me and Hopper were actually paddling out for a number of people in this rip, and I'm, I'm just watching this girl basically die as I paddle out and I lose sight of her and I got there and she was floating face down and um, she was a petite little girl like super skinny I don't know 40-50 kilos and it's really hard to rescue dead bodies it's, it's brutal and I just scooped her up like perfectly it looked like Baywatch and then I punched her in the back 
and paddled her in and um, we brought her back to life. It was like a Baywatch reset. It's like one, two, and she started coughing and stuff. Straight away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so lucky. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, you know, stuff like that. It's just, if we could get a group of lifeguards together and some, some beers or something and yeah. the stories <laughs> would be insane. Yeah. Endless stories, hey. Endless stories. Um, you're talking about before just trying to, someone was trying to kiss you on the spot after a few drinks. Do you remember the drunkest person that ever came up? Or funniest, drunkest person? Drunkest person yeah, probably is just asleep. It's, yeah, not not super funny when you sort of... <laughs> <laughs> trying to do your job. Uh, so many people, you do the sternum rub to them when they're out unconscious and you know, just your knuckles on your stern, like brutally, like trying to pinch, you know when you pinch your sister or something under yeah. your arm there? Like, so you literally get to be violent to people that are unconscious and they wake up and they're trying to get them to... But, yeah, if you leave them out in the sun all day... like. Yeah, that mm. stuff could happen. Fully. I saw a video of this, la- like you in the tower and this lady just kept coming up to the oh, tower yeah. and harassing you. It was, That's on YouTube. She was, yeah, it's on YouTube. She was pretty drunk. She just yeah, kept pestering hilarious. you about something. Mm. I can't remember what she was asking you. I think she was trying to get into the tower and you're just mm. like, no. <laughs> yeah, she got shot yeah. in the window. Yeah, like yeah. honestly, like if, yeah, all the stories, it's, it's mind-boggling. So funny. Definitely never a dull day. Um, so yeah, after lifeguarding, uh, well, I still do some lifeguarding, but you've transitioned into health and fitness. Do you mind explaining to people a bit about kind of what you're doing, what you're up to now? Yeah, health and fitness was always sort of one of my passions and, you know, potentially I, I would have left and pursued it earlier, but I, I just loved being at the beach. Um, lifeguarding gives you like an hour to train every day. And you also get an hour for lunch. So pretend like on a good day, I would either train for two hours or I'd train and surf. And yeah, it was just it's almost a little bit like you're getting paid to train and look after your body. So I love that. And and be at the beach all day. So good. Mm, so yeah, I, I felt like I needed, um, so at this stage of lifeguarding, we're only sort of working at the start, eight months a year. Um, the first year I travelled over to the UK and lifeguarded over there. That was awesome. But then, yeah, the second year, you know, all the lifeguards back then needed other jobs. So, yeah, sort of personal training. I, I, whilst I was a tradie, I, I didn't want to continue down that path. So, yeah, I started to sort of retrain in health and fitness. Nice. And, um, yeah, for people that, that don't know, which is everyone, um, Dino is actually my, my breathwork instructor. He's a master, master coach at the Oxygen Advantage and um, – yeah, I had the pleasure of, uh, of doing that and it was awesome. Um, so can you tell people a little bit about how you got into breath work? Mm. Yeah, well, I was an asthmatic as a kid. So potentially that's sort of how my, my life sort of panned out. I, I was swimming, I was a competitive swimmer in the surf club and then it sort of gave me a career as a, as a lifeguard, that, that, those asthma attacks and being hospitalised because I was forced to swim. If I didn't swim, that regulation of the breath, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't run around the block. Couldn't play footy with my mates. It was, it was pretty debilitating. I've heard a lot of people have that kind of similar mm. experience about being asthmatic and doctors. Used yeah, to and getting it kind of cleared up by by getting in the pool. Um, yeah, it's amazing. So yeah, um, I when I discovered yoga in my, my mid twenties, and um, I was actually getting some regulation of the breath from doing some nasal breathing, like I was getting from swimming. And then I really started to become interested in yoga. Um, and then, you know, eventually found a bit of Wim Hof and then ended up with the oxygen advantage. And it was like, where is this stuff all my life? You know, I haven't had an asthma attack 
yeah. that's it. So I haven't had any issues. Um, you know, all that time wasted with doctors and, you know, nebulizers, Vendelin, puffers, specialists. You know, it really frustrates me when, you know, changing the way I breathe and maybe some dietary changes has improved my health. Um, you know, far more than any of those doctors. I feel like it's such a waste of time and money. For sure. Um, you mentioned um, Wim Hof breathing there. Do you want to tell people that might not know? It's kind of become a household name recently, but I still feel like there's a lot of people out there that might not know what the method is and what kind of the effects are and the benefits. Do you mind telling us a bit about the Wim Hof method? Yeah, Wim, Wim is a household name, definitely. So if you, if you don't haven't heard of Wim, he's sometimes known as the Iceman. Uh, he's in his early 60s, he's a duchy, and he was famous for, for doing all these records of human endurance. He held the world record for an ice bath, was two, two, two and a half hours or two hours. He ran a marathon in the desert, um, did heaps of cool stuff. And he was, he was, yeah, like a little bit of a um, party trick type of guy, but he, he started to challenge scientists why he was so fit and healthy. And they were able to, through science, able to quantify that his breathing technique and the cold therapy was actually doing a lot of things for his immune system. So they injected him with the flu in 2011 or an endotoxin. If you Google it, Google Wim Hof endotoxin study. And he was able to literally breathe out the effects of, of getting sick. And so that really changed the way science looked at it and, and the way people talked about it and put the Wim Hof method on the map. Yeah, and just gone from strength to strength from there. Like yeah. It's insane how many people feel like even now it's kind of probably the biggest pickup of it. Like, you know, mm. I've been doing it for like maybe three or four years and I feel like now everyone in the last kind of three to four years, like everyone knows about it now or is experimenting with it or has tried it. And, um, yeah, well, the ice bath thing seems particularly huge at the moment, although it's the world I'm in, so it may be what I'm seeing on my social media feeds, yeah. but I'm seeing it. I, I reckon it's lagging a little bit behind the, the method mm. from, from like just my general circle of friends like yeah. just because there's a higher barrier of entry of you yeah. know getting in like having the yeah. facilities to do it which is still kind of a tricky thing to organize um but yeah it's just it's great to see people making that first step and that's i guess that's kind of what you did as well that's what got you besides being asthmatic that was your first step into the world and then from there you've gone on to the oxygen advantage and other types of breathing do you mind telling us a bit about how they're different yeah, well, it ties back into the lifeguarding, right? When when someone gets, you know, someone's in a rip and we can go, oh, my God, they're, they're in trouble. And you get out there and they're absolutely fine. And exactly the same scenario could play out. Yeah, if that same scenario plays out, uh, when a person panics, they could potentially die and sort of need resuscitation. So, you know, the old, the old saying, you know, if you're in a rip, don't panic. And then it's like, well, what is panic? So that sort of discovered, I guess, or sparked an interest in me learning about stress and anxiety and, and preventing panic. So, yeah, what I teach now is very much about how people can understand stress and influence their stress response. Yeah. And the ice bath is a really good example of that because when you get put, get put in an ice bath, you go, <gasps> and you start to panic, you start to hyperventilate, you start to do all these things, and it looks very similar to what happens to someone who's in a rip, who's yeah. drowning. Or a hold down, hold, like that involuntary down, yeah. response of your um, body just freaking out. Exactly. Now, the hold down analogy is very similar to, to someone who drowns on top of the water. They go through the same, that fight or flight response, and you try and fight your way back up to the surface. 
And when you do that, you use all your energy and all your oxygen and you actually, yeah, it makes things worse. Now, a good surfer will, will tell you that you're just meant to relax whilst you're down there, right? And it's it's harder to do than it, than it sounds. So, For sure. So, yeah, yeah. So that, that is sort of my fascination and, and rescuing people and breath work. Yeah. And so the oxygen band is more, it's, it's um, CO2 training. You're try, trying to train your body to be able to tolerate CO2 rather than the Wim Hof, which is more hyperventilating and holding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah the Wim, the oxygen advantage is, is getting people to breathe functionally. And as a generalization, and I don't like generalizations, the, the population is over-breathing, they're breathing too much. Um, you could say the population is over-eating as well. And, and when you breathe too much, it just throws your whole system ever so slightly out of whack. Now, we breathe 25,000 times a day, so, you know, just a little bit too much in each breath turns out to be quite significant. For sure. And, um, yeah, it was fascinating to learn about all the kind of breathing disorders that are in that, in the oxygen advantage. So, yeah, you mentioned breathing. What are some of the other um, kind of ailments that you see with people that you coach about breathing? Yeah, so breathing, you know, Are You OK Day was this week. Breathing and, and mental health really strong connection, um, breathing with anxiety, you know, anywhere in that disorder, there's a high percentage of those people are dysfunctional breathers. Um, circulation, see people's circulation, um, you know, even posture. Uh, yeah, the whole understanding the nervous system and, and how, how we deal with stress can come back to breathing. Um, I read somewhere, you know, there's an old study that said 95% of the illnesses are, are caused by stress. So if we can influence our stress by the way we breathe, we can potentially influence up to 95% of illness. So that covers a lot of stuff. That's a big percentage. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's, it's super important for sleep. Um, you know, and, and my own dysfunctional breathing, I was a mouth breather as a kid, which, you know, I had learning difficulties, I, you know, couldn't concentrate. I yeah, had a whole range of issues. And, and now it's, you know, people laugh when I tell them I actually feel smarter. Oh, it makes complete sense, like just having that extra oxygen in the body, extra energy, ability to concentrate. Yeah, Yeah, you mentioned mouth breathing there. Um, What what other, like, do you think, you were talking about anxiety, like people with anxiety, they're more shallow breathing as opposed to to deeper breathing. Is that kind of the main uh, differences you've seen? Yeah, so it's that, it's that. We go, when we go into a fight-or-flight response, our, our blood vessels open, our respiratory rate increases, yeah, so we start breathing a little bit faster and, and we're preparing to basically flee. This, this, um, this uh, response in the human body is, has helped keep us alive for millions of years. It's not a bad thing. But in the modern day and age, we're going into fight-or-flight from an email or someone cuts us off in traffic, and so we're not getting to use the energy that, that, that our body's allowing there, there for us. And, we're, and it seems people are getting stuck in this fight-or-flight response. And so breath work is a brilliant way. When we breathe diaphragm, when we breathe slowly, it, it takes us into that rest and digest, the opposite to the fight-or-flight response. So that's where breathing is huge. So, yeah, it's not – stress is good. Um, and some people are scared of stress altogether. So it's, yeah, understanding – the whole thing and, and sort of tying it back into our nervous system and once you can explain it to someone and get them to feel it and understand it and this is why the Wim Hof method's really good because it, it takes you into a stress response and you're intentionally doing it yourself and then you hold your breath and you come back out of it so it's sort of teaching the body to come in and out of a stress response 
That's the way I love to to teach people to deal with stress. Yeah. That's what I do, I think. You know, I, I'm sort of people have my breathwork coach, PT, health coach. It's like, oh, I'm trying to teach people to understand and influence stress. Stress management coach. Yeah, it's, just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's too many names. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he talks a lot about the different um, kind of disorders there. Um, what are some ways that people can identify and change these habits? Yeah, um, good question. So there's a, a, if you jump on the Oxygen Advantage website, you'll be able to find the BOLT score and the maximal breathlessness test. Yeah. And you'll be able to assess yourself. And I guess without assessing, we're, we're just guessing, right? So yep. we need to sort of assess someone and get some idea of their functional breathing. So the, um, the BOLT score you just mentioned is just how long you can hold your breath um, how would you describe it? Just non, not without pushing it to the limit. You yeah. just, just kind of your yeah, natural rhythm. Some maximal breath retention. Yeah. And the average for that or ideal score would be kind of 30 seconds. Yeah. So we're looking upwards. sort of 20 to 25. They talk about 25. Now the oxygen advantage comes from Buteyko. Buteyko was a doctor out of Russia in the forties and he, he, 40, 45, he used to like to get people to a 40 second um, breath retention but yeah once people get to 25 there's I think 89% chance they're not dysfunctional breathers yeah so yeah there's no sort of machine or anything that, that measures how functional someone's breath is where breath holding seems to be the the best way mm. but um, we're looking at a couple of things there that how, how much we're breathing how we're breathing the, the mechanics um, the biomechanics sort of influences um, you know how much we're breathing as well and then the speed of our breath yeah and the other measurement was the mbt was it which yeah is the, the maximal breathlessness test so that good, gives that's a more good fun to do that one yeah. yeah and gives people an understanding of co2 or carbon dioxide in the blood yeah so that's just how, how long you can walk while um you, your score is your steps so really good one to practice at home and yeah go and do those those little tests and you get a good idea of where you're kind of at yeah, and then, yeah, for surfers and, you know, that's for them to be able to withstand more um, CO2 or be able to walk further holding their breath gives them a bit of confidence in understanding what's going on in the surf. So, yeah, love working with surfers and, and getting people just to know what's going on because once they know, they can, they can influence it. Yeah, 100%. I feel like it's kind of a big market in surfing that's missed is there's a lot of surfers out there that are good enough to surf bigger waves, but they just don't have that confidence from, you know, they just, they, everyone gets scared. Obviously, mm-hmm. like I get scared, you get scared, everyone, no one doesn't get scared, but it's about trying to be prepared for when it is scary. Yeah. And then at least you're like, you don't have that voice in the back of the head that's like, you know, you, you shouldn't be out here because you're like, well, at least I've done the work. If yeah. Whatever happens from now on is just kind of up to, you know, the ocean. So. Yeah really good preparation and you said you've got um you got a course coming up with uh the apnea survival which would be really good for surfers if they're out there yeah yeah so in the last couple of years i've been running some underwater rock running workshops um and i remember first doing there's a there's a piece of this on bondi rescue from like series one or series two where where we did it. it was super fun but back then i didn't actually understand the science so, yeah, I've been sort of teaching people about this, running surface-specific courses for a couple of years, but trained recently with Jason from Apnea Survival and, um, yeah, sort of putting together, just adding adding sort of my knowledge, 20 years as a lifeguard, you know, fitness trainer and, and um, 
Yeah, and then sort of breathwork coach and then putting it together in a surface-specific course where we do some functional breath holdings and understand CO2 and potentially people can do some dry land training to prepare for these big hold downs or whatever their fear is. Yep. Um, it's really interesting. Fear and excitement in the brain are neurologically very, very similar. Yeah, completely. And so for some people, even just telling them that, they're like, and you can see their head going, fear and excitement is the same thing. And I'm like, <laughs> have you ever paid money to go to a scary movie? Yeah. And, and that feeling, right? And then they go, oh, yeah. You're actually paying for someone to scare you. And, and that's, that fear is, is quite exciting, right? Completely. Um, when you're in, when you're sitting there watching a movie that you know isn't real, but then yeah, it's when you take it out of that situation and place it in a different situation, it's it's the same. There's still the similar thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's same with like you know surfing bigger waves. It's yeah. just kind of hanging on the the borderline of am I am I excited or am I scared? Like you don't yeah, really. Yeah, if it's four to six foot, you're paddling out. You're super pumped. If it's you know six to ten foot, you're like paddling out and you go oh, and you're a bit nervous yeah. and then. Yeah, it's the same response. Completely. It's just how we how we act on it. Hundred percent. Oh, that was awesome. Um, so just to finish off, Dino, we ask you some quick fire questions. So this can be answered in like a sentence or a little bit more. So if you're going to give yourself um, any life, your sixteen year old self, any life advice, what would it be? Oh yeah, I don't know. Like, cause I've learned so much from every mistake that I made. You know. Um, Hmm. I would have loved, loved to do a little. I'd love to be able to spell and read and write better. Writing stuff on social media like kills me, takes me so long. To... Yeah, you get. So, there's a really good app called um, AI Copy. Okay. And if you just put your thing in it, and it would just it just spits it, it out. Just spits it out. Yeah. Reconfigured. Um, you know, I talked about being dyslexic as a kid, and like, yeah, my English skills are horrible. Yeah. I'm like, my English skills are okay, but I still use that thing because yeah. I'm like, this is better than what I would say. So, yeah, yeah it's a good little trick, that one. Um, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh. These questions are tough. <laughs> Ooh, you know, Michael Jordan would be cool, but yeah, yeah, Kelly, you know, having some time with Kelly would be epic. Loved to have dinner with Kelly. Um, yeah. But Kelly was at Kobe's 21st. Really? Yeah. yeah. And yeah mates mates. I've actually sort of had the opportunity to hang out and have a couple of beers with Kelly a couple of times. So, yeah. Cool guy. Um, but yeah, like the way he's evolved and what he's done is just phenomenal. Same. And for me, you know, um, you know, sort of working in stress management and performance, you know, looking at athletes. Um, it's got to be the, the yeah. greatest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. He's still up there. Like, yeah. he could still finish top 10 next year, I reckon, if he yeah. gives it a good crack and the waves are good. You know, the, good the term win. goat gets thrown around way too much these yeah. days. Yeah. Um, so, if the world was going to end and you had one country to travel to for a surf trip, what would it be and why? Oh, I love it. I love it over in Bali. Oh, Fiji's a little less crowded. Um, Desert Point. I've had the best waves of my life at Desert Point. Um, still never been. Had a trip with Jesse Pollock and uh, Max Ashford and, yeah, you know, Jesse's a bra boy. And then we were over there with Cole Rothman and, and Dingo Morrison. But I was just hanging with, like, these good surfers, <laughs> you know, former CT guys. Yeah, they would have been getting some good ones. And, yeah, they were getting, but I was just, through, through association, just 
just getting good waves. In the line. That was that was probably, yeah, one of the best trips of my life. I had the GoPro out, actually. Got like some nice. good footage and they're getting really barreled. Yeah, you should get that but up. Still, I doubt it's up. You wouldn't. <laughs> um, if you had to ride one board for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Ooh, yeah, it depends where I live. Um, you know, I'm... For me, I, I froth when I'm in the kids and we're surfing with the kids and it's small and, and I'm on a little foamy at yeah. North Bondi. And then, you know, I also love it when it's when it's pumping and it's bigger. Yeah. Um, ideally, big waves get me, get or bigger waves get me in the ocean if it's sort of small and Grumbly. crowded. I just can't deal with, with the crowd. Yeah. Um, I have a swim or a paddle or a stand-up paddle. Or, um, yeah, just getting, getting, it, getting on a foam board and just, where the vibe's a bit better. I, yeah, I really enjoy Foamies it. Foamies in the north yeah, corner, always a good time. Um, seeing more chicks in the surf in the last couple of years has been sure. awesome. Especially During in my COVID, night. we surfed every day with my kids. That was such an awesome time. But yeah, I'll surf anything in the ocean. Yeah, for sure. Which leads us to our next question. And why does the, why does the ocean matter to you? Why does the ocean matter to me? Yeah, I guess, yeah, I... I love the ocean for my kids. I, I see what it ma- what difference it makes. I see how many people that, that just need it. That, you know, when you're in the city, the ocean is getting out in nature. When you're underwater, there's this beautiful silence. Um, yeah, so that's it's my connection with nature. Well said. The adult's playground. Adult's playground, yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, mate. That was a lot of fun. Learned a lot. And, yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Epic. Yo. If you enjoyed this episode of Ocean Matters Podcast, powered by Board Socks, then please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd be incredibly grateful to keep this show moving in the right direction and to keep spreading the word and the stories of the ocean's beautiful powers to people from all walks of life.